0: You're listening to sermons at High Peak. You know, in the old days, really old days, they used to believe that <clears throat> everything in the universe revolved around the earth. And so everything revolved around us. And it's hard for you not to imagine that if you don't have great telescopes and the scientific understanding of the universe that we have today. That would make sense. It all looks like it's all kind of rotating around us, but it's not. But then something changed. They began to understand things differently, and they realized that our solar system revolves around something else, and that was the sun. And when you think about that, it makes me think that a lot of people in this world still live the old way, don't they? They still think it all revolves around me. It's not an earth-centric, it's a me-centric universe. Everything exists for my benefit, for my pleasure, for my existence. And too many people have that. And they think that God is here for my benefit. For example, God is here. He's he's supposed to benefit me. He's supposed to, whenever I ask him to, fix my marriage. Or uh, to make sure that I have a a good job that I can rely on. or, Or keep me healthy whenever I get sick. He's supposed to provide all that I want, not just all that I need. And if he doesn't, then he has failed me. It's very sad, but we live in a world where a lot of people have that attitude, and because of that, they either forget God or they actively seek to oppose God. They become either agnostic or atheistic in their beliefs. And they start looking for other solutions, other answers to why this whole world exists, and many of them put themselves at the center of their universe. It's a common attitude. And because of that, it's failing. We are failing God, and we do not honor His name in our way of life. We do not honor His name in our attitudes. We do not honor His name in our treatment of other people. And you can see this in the breakdown of society as people begin to get more selfish, more self centered, and struggling to have common decency and care for one another. And what's the result? Well, the result is that it's even coming into the church and we as Christians are disgracing the name of Jesus because they look at us and they think, well, they're no better than I am because our attitudes and our actions do not reflect the change that occurred in our heart when we gave our life to Jesus. And he said, go now and be like me and share that love with the world. And because of this, God wants to protect his name and he will do great things in order to preserve his good name. God's good name is important. Why is it so important? Is he sort of this uh, uh, God who's worried about what people think of him? I've heard people say that they stopped worshiping God when they realized that God seemed sort of like a a narcissistic, uh, weak-minded person. You know, who he was just so worried about what people thought of him all the time. That's not the kind of God you want to worship, but that's not the kind of God he is. But he does protect his name, and why? Why is it so important that his name be glorified? Let me tell you a story. Mac Johnson, he was the center of his football team. They called him Mac because his real name was Marvin. He'd beat you up if, they, if you called him Marvin. But also because they say he was built like a Mack truck, and one time in a football game before it was uh, started, he ate five Big Macs and then threw up on the field after the first play of the game. So they called him Mac. Well, he was known for his antics on and off the field. He was quite a character, cutting up, always, you know, pulling practical jokes and everything. But what he was not known for was his prowess in the classroom. He didn't get good grades. He did okay. He was getting by. But then something happened. His senior year, he took a class because his guidance counselor said, you should take that class. It'll help you get into college. Well, you know, because of the way he played football, he really wasn't going to have a lot of trouble getting into college, but he did it anyway. So he took trigonometry. And he was the only member of Mrs. Peeler's trigonometry class that scored higher than Kenny, one of his classmates. Kenny would end up being the valedictorian of his high school. But for some reason, Mac just got trigonometry. He didn't have to work hard. it. He just kind of seemed to understand it. And when Kenny saw that, he was struggling in the class. He was having to work really hard to get A's. And it frustrated him. And so he, when he realized that Mac, this big old numbskull of a football player, was doing better than him, he went to him and said, Mac, can you help me in trigonometry? If you do that, I'll help you pass English. And I'll help you pass science in every other class that I do better than you. And the two became very close friends that senior year. And when Kenny got up and gave his valedictory speech at the end of the year, believe it or not, guess who he thanked for helping him maintain his uh, perfect grade in high school? It was Mac, (laughs) Of course, everybody erupted because they didn't believe it. Most people still didn't know how good he was. Mac went on to uh, to play football, and he became an engineer after football was over in college. And Kenny went on to be a person of great success. But they both stayed friends. And the reason is because he saw that someone he never imagined could help him could help him. And Kenny always said if it wasn't for Mac, he never would have passed and got, or never would have gotten his 4.0 in, in high school and continued on. You see, that's why God protects his good name. Because he wants us to realize that we can go to him and that he is there for us. He wants us to realize that he will help us deal with our sin problem. The greatest problem any human being has. But then after we deal with that, he wants us to know that we can go to him for strength and for guidance and for wisdom and all the other things that he wants to do for us. Salvation, provision, wisdom, knowing how to live our lives. And so when the chosen people of God failed to protect his good name during ancient times, he worked hard to restore them. First of all, he warned them through the prophets, you know, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah And he tried over and over again to get the attention of Israel saying, listen, if you don't repent, you're going to be punished. He warned them over and over again. He enticed them to repent. He gave them reasons to repent through the prophets, through the experiences. Eventually the Northern kingdom fell because they wouldn't repent. And the Southern kingdom, he said, look at them. You're going to be like them if you don't change. And they never did. So eventually he sent Ezekiel who had a message for them. It's too late. Individuals, you may repent, but the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, you're going to fall. The city is going to be destroyed. You might as well get ready for it. Spiritually and in every other way. And of course, it took place exactly the way it happened. But then something shifted a few chapters before what we're going to look at today. Something shifted in his message. And he switched from being a prophet of doom and gloom to a prophet of good news. And I want you to know something today. The gospel according to Ezekiel is not just good news for Israel. It is also good news for God. Because it restores his good name. I heard that, I read that quote, and I thought, that's perfect. A man named Christopher Wright said it. The gospel is not just good news for us. It's good news for God because it restores his good name. When we live it out, when people show out the gospel in their lives, it reflects on him well because he is good. And he is gracious, and he is kind, and he is decent, and he is loving, and he is forgiving. And all of that becomes obvious when you and I live A gospel life. And so I want us to see how this affects how God uh, protects his good name and what he does to protect his good name and how you and I can uh, apply that in our lives. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'll begin in verse 17. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 17, it says, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. Now, yes, this is kind of a, a gruesome image, isn't it? I'm not going to go into details. You understand it perfectly. All of you understand it. Who are over a certain age understand it personally. He's saying that for two infractions, there's two things here. And he describes the bloodshed of their violent behavior like the blood emission that regularly comes in women's lives. And he also talks about the second one, and that is idolatry. So for two things, he says... You're guilty of bloodshed and you're guilty of idolatry. Now we've been seeing this over and over again, but think about this, the violence that they have. They're also, they're impure. That's what we call ceremonially impure. Unlike us, if you were impure in certain ways in ancient Israel, you couldn't even go into the temple. If you had touched a dead body and you didn't get cleansed, or if you were sick with certain diseases, and you didn't get healed and then cleansed. Or if you had performed certain sins and you hadn't repented and then got cleansed. You hear the thing that gets repeated over and over again, the cleansing part of it? Uh, they did something very much like what we do in baptism. Uh, they would actually go and they had a baptismal pool right there and the priest would always bathe himself and cleanse himself. But if you had one of these diseases or you touched the dead body, you know, because you had to or you accidentally did, or you had performed some kind of sin and needed to be cleansed, you'd go in and you'd have one of these baptisms and they would pour forth water upon you in order to cleanse you. And when that happened, you became ceremonially Pure. He's saying, Israel, by your attitude, your actions, and your existence as unfaithful people, you have now become unclean. And therefore, you're no longer allowed to be in the presence of God. And that's why he removed his temple, which illustrated his, te- his presence. Also, they were idolatrous. They were so enamored with the foreign gods that they had been around. They grew up. They didn't totally remove all the foreign gods from the land when they went in with the time of Joshua. Joshua. And because of this, the influence of these foreign gods kept distracting them away from the one true God. And as a result, they were beginning to allow little things, just just compromising in little bitty ways. And we're seeing this in the church in our time. The church is compromising just in little bitty ways. I'm not talking about style of worship. I'm talking about our ways of living. The standards that we used to follow that were so rigid and sure have now crumbled and broken. And after each generation takes another one away. Every single generation. I dare say in 20, 30 years, the church is going to look like something very different than it looks like now. And if we took our grandparents who were Christians and transported them in time from the 1940s and 50s and dropped them into the church today, they would say, what? What has happened? What have you done? They would be shocked and ashamed. Now, some of that change needed to take place. Things like racism and sexism needed to take place. We needed to eradicate that because we had sinful attitudes about some of those things. But morally speaking, we've gone the wrong direction, and it's not getting better. It's getting worse in many ways. And so look at the result in verse 19 of this passage. He says, So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name when they said of them... These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out from his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Now, how do you react to something bad in your life, even if it's your fault? How do you react? Well, we often find ourselves complaining about it, we get angry and frustrated. And we blame other people, don't we? And I can just imagine these Israelites as they were forced out of Jerusalem and out of Israel and they go into other nations and they begin to talk and folks start to say, well, what happened to that God of yours? What'd you call him, uh, uh, Yahweh? And they probably started complaining. They started bickering and moaning about it, frustrated and angry. How would you react? In November 2018, Christopher Greystock of West Milford, New Jersey, hit the rear end of a car while he was driving. When when the police arrived, they found him staggering around about the scene because he was drunk. (laughs) When they saw him staggering around, they decided to give him a field sobriety test and he failed miserably. He blew a a .13, which is uh, way over the legal limit in New Jersey. They asked him why he was driving drunk and his answer... I drank too much because the New York Jets stink. Now, he didn't use the word stink. He used other colloquial terms. But you get the idea. And the truth was, that week he was right. The New York Jets did stink. They had just been beaten by the Buffalo Bills 41 to 10 in that week's game. So they were really bad, and he was really right. But he blamed his football team when he should have blamed himself for his own stupid choice of drinking and then driving. Too many of us are blaming our failures on other people. When I make a mistake and things go wrong for me and it's difficult, and yeah, I say, well, I know I didn't do the right thing, but that shouldn't have happened. We then sometimes lash out at God and say, well, it's not fair for you to hold it against me that strongly. I mean, look what happened. It's just, you know, at some point you just kind of get past it, don't you, Lord? I mean, yeah, I did a bad thing, but why won't you fix the problem? And we get angry at God. We're not good with our finances. And we get into huge debt. And we blame him for not helping us pay the bills. Or we uh, start to be unfaithful in our marriage. And then things fall apart in our family. And we see it and we say, well, I know. But why can't you just forgive me already? When you really haven't shown any repentance. Repentance. And that's the way it goes, and that's the way these people uh, of Israel had done. They they left town, and they started complaining about all that God had done to them when they had really brought it on themselves. Because remember what we said? He warned them. He showed them how to repent. And then he told them the destruction's coming. If you yourself will just change, you can save yourself, even if you can no longer save your city. And none of that helped and they became captives in Babylon or some of them went and became refugees in Egypt and others ran for the hill country to the north, all fleeing. And in doing so, they blamed God. They were angry at the Lord for what he did. See, here's the thing. Guilty people disgrace God's good name. When we're guilty, when we make the mistakes, sometimes it's just by our actions, and often it's also by our attitude and the things we say after we commit the infraction. When we do the thing that's wrong, we disgrace God's good name. Now, I'm not going to go over all of their sins again. We talked about the two categories, how they were violent. Uh, They would often, you know kill people, and they were treating the poor very poorly, and they had idolatry, they had other gods in their worship practices. But let me ask you this, are we any less guilty than they are today in our culture? Think about this country that we live in, and I love America. God bless America. But you wonder, how can he with all that's still going on? The single biggest blight on American culture is our bloodthirstiness. You say, well, is it really that bad? I mean, I saw that a report that said, you know, crime, except in certain parts of the country, is going down. That's true. But since 1972, we've been murdering a large portion of every generation before they're ever even allo- allowed to take a breath for themselves. And we do so, why? Because sexual pleasure is just far too enticing. And so people get pregnant. <laughs> and in order to stop them from having to have a financial burden or to stop them from uh, having the public disgrace, we kill the baby because that's the easiest way to do it. Some have said, well, you know, I I can't afford to have a baby at this time in my life. Uh, My career is just beginning or I'm still in college or in high school. And so they kill the baby out of an economic idolatry. And for others, it's just a personal convenience. You know, when people say today, oh, we should uh, protect abortion in the case where the life of the mother is in danger or the life of the child is in danger. And they say the life of the mother is in danger and they justify it by saying, guess what? If she's just uh, mentally troubled by this pregnancy, then it's legal. Well, mental trouble is, I just don't want it. It's difficult to have a baby. Yeah, it is. If it's difficult to have a baby, then don't do the thing that brings babies into the world. It's simple as that. Now, I know it's hard. When you get tempted, just don't put yourself in the situation where you'd get tempted. It's astonishing that we have this kind of culture. And because of that culture, we're seeing the bloodthirstiness pour out into other parts of life. And you know where this all began? It began when we said that life was not unique and special, that it all just happened by accident, by chance, If God didn't create us, then we're nothing unique or different compared to all the other creation of the world. So animals are just as special as we are, and the plants and trees are just as good as we are, and it's all good. What that means is we degrade ourselves as not being created in the image of God, and therefore life can be snuffed out in the womb, at the end of life, and why not in the between times? And people begin to do this. Think about this. Some people today want to say, you know, I I agree with you. You're right about all of that. But that's my belief, and I don't want to push my belief on other people. And so I think other people should have that right to decide for themselves. Well, let me ask you this. Is, Is it murder? Yes, it is. It's destroying an individual life. So, But it's her body. She can do with what she wants. She can do with what she wants with her body, but she cannot do with what she wants with that innocent body inside her, which is a different, separate, unique body all to its own. And so saying, I want her to have that right is wrong. Let me ask you this. If I was in the grocery store and walking up and down the aisles, buying my stuff, and I had a child with me, and I started beating that child silly, would you try to stop me? Or would you just, well, you know, it's his child. He's got a right to do what he wants with his own family. No, you'd stop me. You'd call the police. You'd get somebody in there to to make certain it doesn't happen. Well, okay, well, it's a child of 10 years old. That child is viable outside the womb, right? What if it's six months old? That child needs me. It won't survive without my help. Is it viable? Not completely. Yeah, but it's born already. What's the difference between that and six months earlier before it was born? It's still a life. And to say that's their choice, that's their decision, is like you saying, I can kill or beat a child in a car carrier sitting in the grocery cart at the food line because it's mine. No, I think people who say, who stand back and say, well, that's their child, I'm concerned about people like that. I think you either haven't thought it through very carefully. Or I think you're part of this bloodthirsty culture and we are guilty of it. And it's not just that, but we have idolatry like crazy in this country and in our own hearts when things become more important than people. When our jobs become more important than our families and more important than our church. When making certain that our our kids are excelling in uh, things in school or in sports, but they're not excelling in their spiritual walk with Jesus Christ My fear is that the church in America is shifting into the same violent idolatry that disgraced God's name in the 6th century B.C. and that it's going to get even worse in our culture if things don't change. Look at verse 21. But God said, I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. As the church founders in America created this country and this nation on the idea that we should be free to worship God. Their attitude was that we would worship Christ in a God-honoring way. But the problem is our culture has gotten less and less Christian over the years and more and more secular. And we as a church are being more influenced instead of being the influencers. We are changing instead of changing others. And it's happening. The church, yes, it used to be very bigoted Yes, there were a lot of terrible things. In the name of Christ, people degraded the character of women in our history. But we've put that aside for the most part. It exists in small little pockets, but that's gone. But the problem is we're also accepting other sins in, and it needs to change or God's going to work because God will protect his good name when God's people disgrace his name. What's God willing to do? I want you to know that God is willing to sacrifice his good name in order to protect his good name. You say, what in the world are you talking about? I'm talking about this. God is willing to sacrifice for a little while his good name in order to punish the people of God who are disgracing his good name. When I was in eighth grade, I played soccer for the soccer team. And I was the backup goalie and the starting right um, defender. And as a right defender, I didn't do too bad. But as the backup goalie, you really didn't want Mark Volgman to go down (laughs) because then I'd have to play. Well, there was one game where I had to start because Mark and many of the others on the team had done some things they shouldn't have done and they were being suspended. And so for one game, they were not allowed to play. And so I got moved into goal. Somebody else got moved into my position and, about six different players on the team who were really good had to sit out and backups had to come in. And we as backups just were not up to the task. That's why we were backups. And so we did poorly. We played against a team that we should have easily beaten and we lost that game. And of course, everybody blamed me because I was the goalie who let the goals go by. But, you know, the coach said, don't you blame And he named all of us who had to play in positions that we weren't normally playing. He said, you blame the guys who did the wrong thing. They sacrificed this win for what they did wrong. You see, that coach was willing to sacrifice a victory in order to teach a lesson to those young men. And I don't know if they learned the lesson, but I sure learned it. I sure learned it, that when the coach said certain things, you had to obey and you had to do it. Mr. Moore was willing to sacrifice a win in order to protect the season. And God will sacrifice his good name. We see that in verse 22. It says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake. O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you want, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. What's he talking about there? What's he saying? He's saying, number one, I'm willing to sacrifice by my good name and let you be punished. And they were punished. They were taken off into exile or they had to run for their lives and their city and their temple were destroyed. And the neighboring countries and the neighboring religions all said, oh, that great God Yahweh of yours sure didn't protect you there, did he? And God knew that would happen, but he was willing to sacrifice in order to teach a lesson to his people, saying you have to obey. Because unless you obey, you cannot be my chosen people Why did he choose them in the first place? To honor his good name. Well, by the way they were living their life, they weren't honoring his good name. And so he said, I'm willing to sacrifice my good name for a generation in order to restore it by what I'll do next. And what he did next after this was amazing. God will restore his good name by restoring his people. God will restore his good name. He will rebuild the reputation of his good name when he has to punish us or allow us to go through suffering because of our sin. He'll restore that good name by restoring his people, by rebuilding that relationship that he intended to have with his chosen people. And he'll do this through us. He'll do this by the way he treats us. When we fail God, we disgrace God. The public failure of Christian leaders is well documented. Think about it. You can think about lots of names. I could probably list some that you've heard of, but I don't really want to do that. But the problem isn't just the public leaders that have well-known names. It's every day as you and I live our lives and we fail God, we fail God in front of other people sometimes. And our bad behavior disgraces his good name. And he'll, he's going to punish if we continue this. That small circle of people that we know, we have an influence on them. So when we fail God, either it's big sins or sometimes it's just a whole bunch of little sins, but it still hurts the reputation of God. We have to be careful. It harms his witness. But when that happens, guess what he wants to do? He wants to restore us. He wants to return us to a previous state of goodness where we were after one thing happened we confessed our sins asked forgiveness and repented when you admit that you're a sinner are you a sinner anybody here is not willing to say yes i'm a sinner if you are not willing to say that and you do not believe so i'd love to have a conversation with you i'm not going to argue with you but i'd like to talk with you about that because i am a sinner And then you believe that Jesus died for you and he rose again and he's alive today. The work that he did to restore me was his great sacrifice. And so now I have to confess my sins and commit to live my life for him. And once that happens, you're in a clean, pure, perfect state. Not because of what you've done. It's not because of what I did. It's because of what he did for me. Now look at this passage. We're not going to read it verse by verse, but if you go through verse 24 through 36, there are seven things. It's ironic that there's often seven things. What does that say? I think the number seven, when you think about it, how many days are in a week? Seven. It's a number of completion. God designed it from the beginning. He started creating on the first day and he rested on the seventh day. It's a number of completions. So I think this is a symbol to say God will completely restore us. But by doing what? Number one, he's going to gather them from among the nations. Remember it said they were dispersed. They went to Babylon. Some went to Egypt. Others up into the hill country to run away from the destruction. He's then going to cleanse their sins. If you look at verse 25, he talks about, in some of your translations, it'll say sprinkle. Remember that thing I was talking about in the temple where they had those baptism pools where they would pour the water over them? You see, you and I, we look at this and that word sprinkle, it was translated sprinkle into English because they wanted to preserve what was going on in the Catholic church at the time and back in in the time when the King James was first translated. You see, they were just sprinkling water over infants. But you know what that word means? How many of you remember the the bucket challenge? Remember the bucket challenge around on the internet where people would, they would dump buckets of water. I don't even remember what that was for. What was the the thing there for breast cancer or something like that. I don't remember. Anyway, they'd take big old buckets of water and they'd douse themselves with it. You little kids who grew up on Nickelodeon, remember when they would just absolutely pour forth the green slime on top of the people? They got totally covered in it. That's what the word means, by the way. He says, I'm going to totally bathe you. I'm going to wash over you. I'm going to cleanse you. That sounds a lot more like what we do today. Total baptism, total cleansing. He says, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to remove all your sins. Is it because he's going to make them do a list of great things? You know, if you do these 10 good things, you can overcome your sin. No. He's just going in his book of list of sins where he's got Kevin Purcell's name down. What's he done? Oh, look at that. Ooh, he did that yesterday. Here's what I'm going to do. Erase it. Pull it out of the book. Rip it up and throw it away. Burn it up in the fire. It's gone. It doesn't exist. My sins won't exist any longer before God. He says, I'm going to gather them. I'm going to cleanse them. I'm going to give them a heart transplant. In verse 26, it said they had a heart of stone. And he says, it's like this. I'm going to crumple that outer shell and restore it to its soft, malleable form where he could change us and he could work with us. He says, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. We receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from our salvation. He secures us, protects us for all eternity, and then he also guides us. The Holy Spirit helps you make the right choices. He says, I'm going to restore your obedience through your Holy Spirit. And then he says this. He says, I'm going to make the land that I promised you, that promised land, I'm going to make it blossom. Literally, blossom. Plant life growing again. Trees, flowers, everything growing again. And when that happens, the people will return and rebuild their cities, and the population will grow. That's the seventh thing. Now, I want you to hear something here. A lot of this, he says, I'm going to gather them from the nations. That's happening today, by the way. And the blossoming of the land, that's happening in Israel, the physical land of Israel. Too much of the time we try to take this and make it a super spiritual thing. It's not just spiritual, it's literal. The land of Israel is blooming. The cities are being rebuilt. And people are returning to that city in Jerusalem. There's a man named Joel Rosenberg. He's one of my favorite authors. He writes kind of Christian spy thrillers, among other things. And he's an American. He grew up in America, but he is a Jew. Having studied and read the prophecies of the book of Ezekiel, he said, you know what? I'm going to take my family back to Jerusalem. Because he believes it's starting now. And I agree with him. And he's bringing a restoration that will change the whole world. Look at verse 31. He says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded by your own ways, O house of Israel. What's he saying there? He wants us to be miserable? Yeah, for a second. He wants us to mourn over unrighteousness. Jesus said that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He was talking about unrighteousness. He was talking about this. When you and I look back in our heart that we used to have before we were a Christian, and we see how sinful we were, and he says, I want you to hate that so that you'll never repeat it. You'll never go back there. When God restores a person and puts them back on right footing, He wants you to look back at your former sinful life and say, Man, I wish that I could go back and not do the things that I did. How many of you have things like that? If you were to stand up here, you could list some stuff. Each of you maybe could give a testimony of ways that you've acted in the past. You wish you could go back and stop it because you're ashamed of it, you hate your sin. When you become to a point where you hate your sin, that's when you truly confess your sins. To confess your sin is to agree with God about your sin. That's what that literally means. And God hates sin. Now look at verse 36. It says, then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me To do this for them, I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as a holy sacrifice, like the flock of Jerusalem, on the on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. They then they shall know that I am the Lord. That last reference there about the flock in Jerusalem on the feast days, on their feast days, they had all these special holidays, and on those days people would come from all over the place. And they would come wanting to offer sacrifice. And so they'd come bringing their sacrifice and there would be a livestock in the temple like crazy all over the place. You'd see livestock. People bringing in their livestock or they'd sell their livestock at home and, and then buy it in the markets outside the temple to come in and bring it uh, to the temple. And so, you, I mean, you could hear the, the bleeding of sheep probably constantly. I bet that was a loud, thunderous sound constantly the days leading up to these holy days. And they would offer the sacrifices, the blood pouring forth in a good way this time because it was offering a sacrifice to appease uh, the anger of God towards sin and restore the cleanliness of the people. And he says, I'm going to bring back all kinds of people to my land. He's going to change the world. And he says, by this, well, the whole world is going to know that I am the Lord God. Wow. God really got a hold of her. You ever heard someone say that about a person after they got saved? Wow, God really got a hold of him. Someone is radically changed and radically different. It's exciting to see. And I hope I don't embarrass you, Eric. I'm excited for your baptism next Sunday night. He's someone God seems to have really gotten a hold of. And we have a responsibility when someone changes to now nurture them and help them grow in their faith. We need to do a much better job of discipleship. I'm going to begin talking about that tonight. You come tonight and learn about discipleship. Do you want to learn and become a better disciple? To learn how to disciple other people? Start by being here tonight at 6 o'clock. But you know, it comes with a restoration. You know, we love these restoration shows at our house. Barb and I, we like to watch them. and um, <clears throat> One of the fun kinds of, are the, the kitchen, the, the restaurant renovation shows. You ever see those? The most popular one is that Kitchen Nightmares, you know, with Gordon Ramsay. But, but I kind of like the Restaurant Impossible with Robert Irvine. He finds a restaurant. They're on their hard times. They're probably in debt. You know, everybody thinks the food is terrible, and so they don't come. And it looks like it's a, you know, run-down old place from 40 years ago. that had never been updated. And so he goes in there, and he totally changes things. He fixes up the restaurant. He teaches the cooks how to cook, and he teaches the serving staff how to serve, and he restores the restaurant. And you can go on their website and find out how they do. You know, they show a little thing at the end, oh, it's up 30%, or it's up 20%, or it's doubled, or whatever. But some of them it doesn't work. And I think the reason is because those people, all that they've been given, all the opportunities to change, and they squander it by not changing themselves. And that's the problem that we face as believers. We have been given an opportunity. God has said, I want to fix you. I want to change you. I want to restore you. I'm going to take away that sinful attitudes that you've had, those those terrible things that you've believed or that you've done. I'm going to wipe all of that clean. Wipe the slate clean. New start, fresh start. Let's start over and just ignore the past and move on from here. And people squander the opportunity by going back instead of going forward. The truth is what we need to do is we need to understand that God wants to protect his good name. And he wants to use you to restore his good name. He wants us to be the instrument through whom people look at the world and look at life and they say, there's a God in heaven who loves and he's going to take care of things. Now look at verse 22. Read it again. It says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you are. What does that mean? I don't do it for your sake. He says, I don't do it because you deserve it is what that means. Yes, we're going to benefit from it, but no one deserves it. You don't deserve this cleansing. I don't deserve this restoration. I don't deserve to be used of God, and what he wants to do is turn us into a trophy for his good grace, and he wants to display us proudly for everyone to see. Grace works that way. It restores God's good name by restoring us. Back in 1989, Ramil Robinson played basketball for the University of Michigan, and early in the season, they faced off against Wisconsin. And uh, even though the Wolverines had been favored, Wisconsin led by one point at the end of the game. And there were two free throws, and the game was over. And Ramil Robinson stood up to the line and began to shoot. And so he took his first shot, and he missed. Well, they still had a chance to tie it up, and they could go to overtime and maybe win the game that they should have won all along. And so he shoots, and you can guess what happened. He missed. He missed. And after that, he was beside himself. He cried. He was so upset. But he did something. From that moment on, after every single practice and every single game, he would shoot 100 free throws. No matter how tired he was, no matter how long it had taken, no matter how late the game, he would shoot 100 free throws. And he did this all season long. And you could see the improvement. Well, guess what? He had another chance. It was the national championship game later that year. And he stood on the line, same situation. This time it was overtime. He stood at the line with an opportunity to win the game in overtime for his team at the very end of regulation. And because of the work that he had put in, he dropped in the first shot, tied it up. He dropped in the second shot and won the game. And the national championship... A man who had failed earlier in the season succeeded because he saw the opportunity to make a change. Unlike a basketball game, we can't become winners by our hard work. It doesn't work that way. You can't win the grace of God through your hard work. He wants to offer it freely. You don't have to do anything for it. But believe it and accept it. And commit your life to him. And he'll do it for you. He'll take you by his grace. Wipe away all the sins. He'll start over with a fresh, clean page. And it's time to now move forward. He wants to make you a trophy of his good grace. And he wants to use you to promote his good name in the whole world. And all you have to do today, right now, is be willing to accept it. Are you? Are you willing? Are you willing in this moment to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? To give him your all. Everything you've got. By simply saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I promise to do my best from now on to live for you knowing that there's nothing good you can do to overcome the bad that you've done in the past. It doesn't work that way. It's not like he's got a one for one. Okay, there's one sin because you did the one good thing. No, it doesn't work that way. All that sin is wiped out. Now we're just looking forward to the good. Are you willing to receive that today? Let's pray. Father, right now, there might be somebody who can hear my voice and they realize that they have sin in their lives and they've never truly repented of their sin. The Holy Spirit is convicting them even as we speak. Lord, I pray that if that's true, if there's someone who can hear this and they feel that you are working and you're, you're uh, trying to speak to them, Lord, I pray that you would just help them to have the courage to be willing to say, yes, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? By your grace, will you please remove my sin to wipe the slate clean to delete the file that lists all my sins. And I promise now to start fresh and start new with you, Lord, and I want to obey you. Will you change me? Lord, will you use me to show the world how good you are? Father, I pray that if there's anybody here who needs to make that choice, that they'll do so and be willing to do so. If there's anybody listening online through the Internet, that you'll give them that that desire to do so right now. And just say a simple prayer, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry. I know that you died for me, that you rose again, that you're alive today. And you want to live through me by the way I live my life, pleasing you and honoring you and loving others. So Lord, help me in Jesus' name. God, if there's anybody here who prayed that prayer right now, I pray that you would help them to understand that that there's a whole celebration in heaven just for them. And now the next step is to take that step and make it a public choice, that they're willing in this moment and in this time to stand up for you and to let the whole world know how good you are because of how good you've been to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church and if God has really spoken to you through this message please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us or if you want you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com We're also on Facebook searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.